0: My guest today on Mission Impact is Lisa Hazersian. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers. And all of this for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Lisa and I talked about public policy and advocacy for nonprofits. We explore how anger and sadness can be a catalyst for action. How nonprofits, especially C3s in the US, can incorporate advocacy into their work and further their mission. And why it's so important to think about why your issue could matter to the decision maker from their point of view. And some simple steps you can take to start building a relationship with policymakers, as well as how to identify and build a ladder of engagement for your supporters. Welcome, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Carol. I really appreciate the
1: opportunity to be
0: here today. So I like to start out with a question around what drew you to the work that you do? What would you say motivates you and what would you describe as your why? yeah so uh,
1: a lot of answers to that question but they they really all come back to two things Um, one of which is really at at a few key points in my life um, needing to find an outlet for a lot of sadness and anger during times of loss um, and the other being my, my training as a historian, I did a, a career change. Um, I have a PhD in modern US history and I studied um, social movements and public policy and how they influence one another. And the, the moment when all of that came together um, was uh, 2008, the, the moment really lasted about six months, uh, starting with um, a tenure track job offer. Um, which was great, um, except that the university where I was offered a job, this is back before marriage equality, um, and I would be moving with my partner, now my wife, um, and the university didn't offer domestic partner benefits, um, and that could have been a big issue. And so I asked um, if they might be able to come up with some kind of way for my wife to uh, get onto the university's health insurance policy. I pointed to uh, a couple of examples of other universities that had made these kinds of accommodations. Um, And long story short, uh, the response I got a few days, well, the immediate response I got was being yelled at, which was not good um but the ultimate response was being told the university is no no longer considering your candidacy for this position and um i that was very upsetting (laughs) as you can imagine Um, and this was 2008 and i suddenly had a lot of time on my hands because the contract i had had just ended um and i didn't know what i was going to be doing but Uh, I was approached and asked to um, pull volunteers together for the Obama campaign um, to have a presence at the uh, Cleveland Pride Parade and Festival. And I did that. Um, And I did that specifically because Barack Obama was a candidate who, although he did not at the time support marriage equality yet, um, he did support uh an employment non-discrimination act um that would um that we still don't have um, still trying to get what's now the equality act passed um but for me this was a way not just to get something for myself but to get something for everyone to fight to have a president who um who would sign a much needed non-discrimination act and that became the thing that I put all of my emotions into for the next several months um, and really saw a lot of the things I had studied um, coming into action in terms of what it means to um, to marshal your leadership skills in a way that draws in hundreds of people to build the collective power you need to achieve a goal, which in this case was um, getting Ohio uh, for, for the campaign. Um, And I, I, after the campaign took some time to take stock and realized that um, I should build myself an off-ramp from academia and an on-ramp into
0: professional advocacy work. I feel like that's a that's an off ramp that a lot of people are exploring these days, (laughs) but that's a different
1: conversation. That is a a different conversation, and I can recommend someone
0: to talk to you about that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I I uh, I I appreciate that story, and yeah, I do think that a lot of advocacy work does start with. Something, you know, you're angry about or something that pisses you off or sadness or any of those things that can be a catalyst to, okay, well, I can sit in this or I can try to move things forward. And as you said, have things be different for me, but have things be different for a wider group of people, which is which is so important. Um, my exit from history, I was a history major back in college, was much less dramatic than yours. I was doing my uh, uh, thesis for my BA and um, at the library, the the big library downtown in Philadelphia and reading magazines from the late 1800s. um, I was looking at uh, the role of Advice being given to women on parenting in mm-hmm. uh, uh, that time period in Germany. And I found that I was allergic to old paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a life of being in I'm our old, lives that be, for sure. <laughs> was not going to be in my future. <laughs> so, not quite the same, but uh, but uh, yeah, got that, that uh, commonality, that background. So... <laughs> As you said, you you've shifted into doing um, political ag- advocacy work and and helping people with their political campaigns, um, as, you know, with with nonprofit organizations. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions that people have about you know, what's allowed, what isn't allowed? Um, What would you say are some of those some of the biggest misconceptions that you run into in terms of advocacy work and uh, organization nonprofit organizations that you work with?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I think uh, plenty of people before me have said that, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions out there is you know this idea that nonprofits can't do policy advocacy, um, and that's just absolutely not the case. Of course they can, um, and and I would argue they should. Right, nonprofits um, have a lot more knowledge and experience in a whole range of fields that are areas where public policy is made um, than most of the people who are making those decisions, and when nonprofits bring their voices and bring the voices of the people they serve into those conversations um, to try to advance policies um, they're really doing a service to everyone because it's not like lawmakers can be experts on everything none of us can um, um, and you know I'm I'm not an attorney and if I were I would have a disclaimer that I'm not giving legal advice um, but But the short of it is that um, as long as you aren't endorsing a particular political candidate, um, doing anything to try to affect the, um, to try to elect person X over person Y, um, it's very likely that you're perfectly legally compliant. um, And it's nearly impossible for um, most organizations, even full time advocacy organizations, to Run up against the uh, the IRS limits on how much time and money money you can spend on advocacy. Um, but that that misconception aside, because that's you know one that comes up over and over. I actually think another really um, really major misconception is that progressive nonprofits can't get anything done unless Democrats are in power. Um, or the flip side of that, that having Democrats in power means that progressive nonprofits can get things done. Um, neither one of those is completely true. And and both of them miss the reality that um, there are a lot of things competing for attention at legislatures. And at the end of the day, it's anyone's ability to influence those decision makers that matters. And, um, and there are a few things that nonprofits can do that can really help with that. Um, and one of them is simply having supporters who are constituents of those key lawmakers. Um, and the other is speaking their language. So when I was executive director of the North Carolina AIDS Action Network, Um, I I did not harbor any illusion that many of the Republican lawmakers in control at the North Carolina General Assembly were going to be moved by a lot of the things that motivated me, the fact that I had lots of gay male friends living with HIV, for example. Um, But um, I did think that they would probably be moved by the idea that um, it would be great if our kids could grow up in a world where, you know, once they are adults, um, they're not worried about HIV. Um, and that in the meantime, it'd be great if the state wasn't spending as much money uh, dealing with HIV. Um, and having those messages that resonated with the lawmakers really, really made a big difference.
0: Yeah, well, a couple couple things. Um, Obviously, our conversation is all grounded in the context of the United States. I do have folks who who listen to the podcast from around the world, so uh, for this kind of topic, it's all uh, within the particular laws and institutions that we have here. You mentioned the IRS, the God, I can't. Even, Internal Revenue Service, that's what it's called. And uh, I think the limits that you were talking about also are particular to one type of nonprofit, which is, I i, I don't know the percentages, but I'm guessing the most common, uh, the C3 uh, within that code. Um, and then, of course, our our demic our politics in terms of our majorly two party system and all of that. But with with all of that in, in mind, um, I think what you're saying, though, taking all of those particularities of uh, the U.S. aside, um, the what you're talking about of really thinking about what matters to the decision makers that you're trying to speak to and. Um, share your message, share your, you know, trying to move things forward, getting in their shoes, thinking about how they're looking at things, where there might be common ground. I mean, that's something that folks could do anywhere. Absolutely. No, that's, that's
1: exactly right. And, you know, I have some colleagues in Canada who, uh, who I've talked with about, about similar things, you know, different Particulars about how government is structured, what parties might be called, et cetera, but same basic principles. Um, and, and I would add that you know a lot of these um, a lot of these tips for doing better public policy advocacy also apply to just any kind of mission advocacy, including fundraising. Um, you know, I, I think many of us have had the experience of sitting down and trying to figure out how to translate. Um, how we talk about our work and our mission in the day-to-day into the language of whatever major funder uh, we might be applying for funding from, and um, just you know, speaking their language is half the battle there.
0: Yeah, what matters to them, and and how do you? I mean, so that that what are some of the you know specific or concrete steps that people? can take to start to start being able to kind of shift their perspective and get a better understanding of of uh the folks that they're trying to influence
1: yeah so i mean always sort of trying to ground ourselves in who's our audience um who is it who whose help we really need because if it was just us (laughs) right if it was just our staff our board uh, the people we serve uh, the people on our email list then we could just mobilize everyone and do it um, but when we need to persuade people who are on that on the outside of that us that we really need to think about who are these people and you know these days it's not that hard um, everyone's got a website Um, It's, uh, um, you know, you can start doing things. I think one step that is really useful is um, to to do like a really quick survey of the people who receive your email and, you know, your, your email blasts and simply ask like, hey, do you know any of our policymakers at the local level? county state or whatever the the kinds of uh, divisions of government might be in other countries Um, because there's a a good chance that there are people who are receiving your emails who do have relationships Um, and that's important in two ways Uh, the first being they're really going to know and understand those people a lot better and second um, many times the best messenger is somebody who already has a good relationship um, with that lawmaker um, So you know that's that's just a one one really simple thing that people can do.
0: Yeah, and all those steps that you take to kind of build build that relationship, start to get to know the person um, And I was listening to another podcast uh, last week and this was more in terms of kind of, you know, business networking and, but the person had a, had kind of a, a, a principle of no ask before one year of, of being in relationship with that person. So not like, okay, okay. I'm going to knock on your door and I'm going to ask you immediately for something that, that, uh, and, and she used the word political capital, although it wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. uh high, you know, lar- large P and I don't know what you think about that or, um it, it, you know, that's just, that's just one kind of uh, f- framework for, uh, for thinking about it, but what I did appreciate about it was that you need to invest something in that relationship before you're asking something of the person.
1: Yeah. So, I mean i I would not wait a year. <laughs> <laughs> I wait a month. Okay. <laughs> if you need something, you ask. But I, but I definitely uh, concur that it is always better to start building a relationship before you need something. Um, and I, I recently, well, uh, a, a little while back, wrote a blog piece that the North Carolina Center for Nonprofits um, put out. It actually came out shortly after the November election here in the U.S., and it was, you know, simply a sort of, you know, why and how to congratulate the people who just won. Um, and you know, basically saying like, this is a great opportunity just to get on their radar, tell them a sentence about what you do, what you care about, make sure you're gonna get their emails. And it's just, it's going from being a complete stranger to having that initial point of contact, which can be really important later on where when something comes up um, and, you, and you really need to have a more substantive conversation.
0: Yeah, so I think some other things. I I, I really appreciated that uh, post of yours, and because it's so simple, right? Um, and and anybody can any can anybody can do that, um, but not everybody's going to, uh, which sure. will be the differentiating thing. And then other simple things of you know, cel- helping celebrating wins and uh, thanking someone for, for lots of different things, just all those little bits and pieces that you can do to start cultivating that relationship.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. What would you say are some of the big mistakes that people make?
1: Um, well, one of the biggest mistakes I've made, um, and have really learned from is, um, limiting uh, trying to do everything ourselves and limiting opportunities for other people to get involved um, you know the the reality I, I love that part of your tagline is you know that, that this podcast is for you know progressive nonprofits and associations, or organizations um, who you know want to achieve big things without being martyrs to the cause um and i have definitely been in positions where i have um worked myself to the brink of like needing to be admitted to the hospital for rehydration and rest um and that is not healthy and it is not sustainable um but it's not necessary either um the the reality is that whatever it is that we're doing whatever our mission is, whatever our immediate goals are, there are other people out there who want us to be successful. And there are a lot of people out there who want to help. And we just need to ask. And um, the, the reality is that when we give people strategic opportunities to help out, At whatever level of engagement works for them, whether it's uh, you know let me take three minutes and do something, or let me take three hours and do something once a week, or let me take three hours one time in my life. (laughs) Um, Whatever it is, um, that that gives us so much more capacity um, to get things done. And so, you know, I, I think one of the most important things that any organization can do. Is think about the best ways to engage their supporters more frequently in more meaningful ways.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate what you're saying around it's not necessary, but I would also say, you know, especially in in this kind of work and probably any kind of work, the more people you have involved, the more effective you're going to be anyway.
1: Oh, um, absolutely.
0: But I see a lot of times, like. Um, organizations that, you know, let's say they're an environmental organization and they do uh, environmental education. And, you know, they kind of have this assumption that, so we bring these kids out, they're doing environmental education, they're going to talk to their parents and their parents are going to become advocates for the environment. And it's like, there's so many leaps between the one to the other that yeah, maybe one or two of the folks, you know, will have that ultimate outcome. Um, but if, you know, there are so many like little breadcrumbs that you could, you could, or, or, yeah. Uh, steps that you could offer people, but I find it's hard for people to kind of think of what those little steps are. Sure. And
1: so yes. And. Okay. (laughs) Um, I think that there are um, a, another mistake I see a lot are organizations who um organizations that have a ton of ideas. Let's do this thing and let's do this thing and here's another thing we can do and here's another thing that we can do. And all of and some of those ideas can be, you know, fabulously creative and innovative and um, you know, do a good job of leveraging their strengths, but they aren't necessarily attached to a core strategy to achieve a particular campaign milestone or particular goal, um, nor are they attached to a more overarching organizational goal of building long term power and um you know i i want to destigmatize the word power um because the the reality is that um power is what you make of it and having the power to make the world a better place in whatever way your nonprofit or association is trying to do um should be celebrated um and uh, one thing that i help organizations do is take a step back and this is a place where my training as a historian really helps even though you stopped in those archives <laughs> <at> yeah <your, laughs> you can understand that as a historian um, you develop this perspective that is simultaneously very long range and has a ton of attention to details of how change happens over time. Like that is very much what uh, what historians do. Um, And it's what successful advocacy organizations um, do if they're doing a great job of developing strategy is they think ahead a few years down the road to the kind of impact they wanna have and they kind of backfill and think about, okay, well, we can't, we don't have the resources we need right now. We don't have the capacity we need right now to achieve this big thing that we want to achieve by 2025, let's say. Um, but we can get there. Let's think about the steps to take to get there. And it could mean um, just growing the number of people who um, who are part of your organization, who you're in dialogue with, who you can mobilize uh, in support of a goal. It can mean um, uh, building out, cultivating a group of people who can um, talk to the media um, and be effective storytellers on behalf of your organization. Um, It can be, um people who can bring some specialized skills that you need Um, you brought up you know an environmental piece it could be that you know you need the capacity to just get water samples from across the entire state Um, and it turns out that that's something where you can teach uh, everyday people to go out and help be water monitors. Um, I have very little expertise in this and just (laughs) using this as an example. Um,
0: yeah. So can you give me the example of, um, I, 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 I was thinking about what you were saying and I think, you know, one of the things that the, um, nonprofit sector does not struggle with is a deficit of ideas and a <laughs> deficit of things that they could do or, you know, uh, ways that they they could try to move their um, issue forward. But uh, can you give me an example of when folks have, you know, kind of taken those ideas, but really built a strategy to move move their issue forward and how they've engaged people? Yeah, well, I, I'm going to
1: give you an example that I know well, um, which, uh, again, is drawing from um, my own work with the North Carolina AIDS Action Network. Um, when I was hired, um, I was the, f- the first, uh, the, the first full time staff person, um, the, the first executive director staff of one and the first thing i did was um ask like who who are we who are all the people who've ever been involved in this formerly all volunteer thing and it was a list of 243 people who i either was able to find an email or a phone number for Um, and i started building and i i started building for a very particular need that we were aware might be coming down the pike. Uh, A program that at the time was called the AIDS Drug Assistance Program had, um, there had been funding crises in many of the states in the US including North Carolina um, that resulted in waiting lists. and, um, And we were anticipating a state budget battle that I needed to prepare for, and I knew that, um, that no matter how great a one-pager I developed and uh, no matter how much of a collegial relationship I was able to form with the heads of the Health and Human Services Appropriation Subcommittees, um, that. At the end of the day i was going to need more to convince them um and and so i started tapping the people who we already had as uh folks who had ever done something and using them as my starting point to recruiting more people across the state just needing numbers Um, and also needing breadth of coverage particularly in the districts of the legislators who sat on that super important Health and Human Services Appropriations Subcommittee. So I was very intentional about going to those particular corners of the state and finding constituents of those specific people so that when the moment came around that I kept on chasing after Nelson Dollar trying to talk to him, and he kept on not talking to me (laughs) and I kept on trying to schedule an appointment, Um, we had a a list, a deep list of people who lived in his district and we mobilized them to make phone calls into his office and um, gave them a little bit of training about what to say on the phone. Um, And I gave it a couple of days and then I went back to the office to make an appointment and the legislative aide said oh yeah we've been getting a lot of calls about that issue let me fit you into his schedule um, and i you know i i this because um uh, a, a lot of us who you know got a lot of education um might have some letters after our name um are are under the illusion that all we have to do is is develop a compelling argument. Um, but actually we need to actually force people to listen to our argument. Um, and you know, I, I I like to say that there's there can't be persuasion without the pressure to actually listen to you. And so that's a, a case of doing that base building, that intentional base building to create the pressure for a key legislator to listen.
0: And that base building, I mean, I'm I'm on a lot of newsletter lists and and uh you know get advocacy alerts. Um, and some I respond to and some I don't. And I I don't consider myself, you know, someone who's really that that that's you know, I I I would say probably I'm a reluctant uh advocate. Um, and so even something like that, I feel like, you know. It takes some steps to get people comfortable to pick up the phone, send an email, you know, do any of those things to, to uh, contact uh, decision makers. Um, and w- one of the things that we talked about beforehand that that I think is relevant in a lot of different circumstances is this notion of kind of a letter, a ladder of engagement. And you talked about before, kind of. You know something someone can do in three minutes or maybe it's three hours in a week or maybe it's three hours one time um can you talk a little bit about more about that and and kind of you know cultivate your base that's a that that there's a lot of things that could go into that right to actually have it be successful sure yeah no I, I would love to talk about that and and and
1: i will say that um when i was with with ncan with the aids action network just about every board meeting, my staff and I would tell a story that explained the roles of, you know, in the end, it was me and a community organizer and a communications person. And we would tell a story that demonstrated what each of us did in the organization. Um, but it also talked about our ladder of engagement. And the story would go something like this. Um, you know, it would, it would go something like, um, our community organizer went to this event in the community and met a bunch of people and had conversations with them and moved some of those people from being members of the general public to being people who we had the ability to get in touch with by getting their contact information, getting them signed up to receive our emails. Um, And at the same time, he invited them to become part of our volunteer team where we would ask people if they would make a commitment to um, devote three hours one time in the next three months to helping us out. And so we wanted to give people a sense of, we're not asking for your whole lives, but we also don't wanna bother trying to get you out to things if you're not thinking that, yeah, sometime in the next three months, I wanna do this. Um, and that was the beginning of us explaining our ladder of engagement. The first rung is simply putting your foot on that bottom rung and saying, yeah, let me get on your email list. Let me get on your you know, your text list. Um, here's how to hear from me. But maybe you might grab on higher on that ladder and say, you know what, I I have this intention of becoming a volunteer um, and stating that. Um, And then we would move people um, and, you know, I would say the next real step, uh, our communications person would move people from being signed up to getting people to take that first click action um the getting people to respond to an action alert getting people to share something on facebook Um, and and we we really developed a few different ladders of engagement and one of them was more of a um, base building lane of volunteering with us at community events to do the same thing our community organizer had done go around with Clipboards, petition, postcards, etc., bring more people involved. And another piece was um, was more storytelling oriented. Um, get people involved in telling their stories about why our work mar- mattered to them and why the policies we advocated for were important in their lives. Um, but the the basic concept is to have a predefined set of steps that, um, that people can take from not being anywhere on the ladder to climbing up that ladder to positions of increasing responsibility and importance to the success of what you do. I personally am OK with letting people skip a few steps. Sure but not be all the way at the top. Um, Because having those steps is important for for getting some proof of concept that somebody is going to be reliable and be effective at particular things. And there's also a certain amount of skill building that one wants to do. Um, If you have someone who's volunteering as a phone banker, um, you want them to be really good at it before they host their own phone bank and need sure. to support other people who are doing it for the first time.
0: Well, I love the specificity of, of that. Um, you know, the email one, I think, uh, you know, our contact information, I think a lot of people are probably already doing uh, building their list, building, you know, how they get in touch with people, but that next step of the, the way that you talked about, you know, three hours in the next three months Um, it's memorable for one and uh and it's uh, it's possible to it's it's i mean it's a commitment right it's not nothing it's not i'm just going to ask you to do this little thing that doesn't really matter to you it's 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 more than it's something you need to uh, advocate uh, actively say yes to and yet it's not so huge that it become you know you kind of get paralyzed by oh my god they're asking me to do something and i'm not ready um, yeah. And I and I love the idea of um, also that, uh, you know, through that uh, one, you're seeing who does step up uh, and then two, you're having a chance to kind of build their skills as they as you as you go. And then also, you know, seeing do they follow through? Do they say what they're going to do? Um, you know, and I think that's applicable in so many different parts of the work that nonprofits do. Um of, you know, someone may be trying to build their board. And I often talk to groups about, okay, so get them involved in some other way, a committee, uh, a campaign, you know, some specific things that so you can see how they are to work with. Uh, do they follow through? Do you have to chase after them? You know, what, what's what's their work style? Does it fit? Is it contributing? Is it draining? Um, before you ask them for something really big that could have just a huge impact on your organization. Oh my gosh!
1: Well, that is excellent advice you're offering, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's another piece that I want to put out there. So and and really just talking with you, you know, I remember um, the the community organizer who was on staff when I ultimately left Ncan. Um, he reminded me one day that. The first time he met me, he was an undergraduate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I was a guest speaker in a class he was taking. And um, that was his first awareness of me and what I was doing. And he waited tables at a local diner. And, you know, I bumped into him there. And then he showed up as a volunteer um, and was someone who I saw had some real natural abilities uh, in this area and got him involved more. And then he, you know, he had a job where we were coalition partners. And, um, you know, I just uh, finally I was able to hire him (laughs) at, at, at one point. But so he went all the way from being a member of the general public in a classroom and getting involved as a volunteer and then being a volunteer leader to ultimately being staff. Um, And one thing that I'm really proud of to this day about the program that we built, um, what our supporter engagement program looked like is the number of people who were involved as volunteers or interns who now work in the field. Um, it's actually a really great way to, um, to build the the profession, a really great way to help people build their leadership skills.
0: Absolutely. And I, I helped um, an association build, you know, their ladder of engagement. And this wasn't from a policy point of view, but from a, a volunteer leadership point of view. And it was just, you know, okay, you have the first step is to become a member maybe, or maybe even the first step is to come to an event that the association um, holds or, or even, you know, well, I guess the first step before that would be it be in the field (laughs) and um, you know, become aware of the organization, come to an event um, and then, you know, start to use the resources of uh, organization Uh, step up to volunteer to be a presenter or write something for, and it could be at the local level or or regional level. And it's just like one small step, as you say, after another of taking increasing responsibility. Um, And then in that case, uh, for that person building their visibility over the course of their career and their leadership skills. Um, But I think it's also one of the things that we try to as we were kind of mapping that um, uh, volunteer leader experience, um, also thinking at each step, what what is the person, you know, not only what they're contributing, but what they're gaining through that experience um, of the the and and being explicit about the skills that they're able to learn as they go, and how how you know what they're doing ultimately is contributing to that bigger picture
1: yeah well that that piece is huge and one thing that's always been important to me um whenever i do any kind of um training well first of all i always believe in if you have volunteers you need to actually spend some time training them before you just throw them into whatever they're doing but yes please for me, <laughs> yes. But for me the the training should always have a why as well as a how,
0: hmm.
1: and. Um, and have the big picture of, you know, we are doing this because here's how this little thing that we're going to be doing fits into the bigger picture. And then, you know, with, with the how, I like to have, you know, let me explain it, let me demonstrate it, let's have you role play it, let's evaluate, okay, now you're ready. Um, and I think that that is super important to the... Um, the quality of volunteer experience that people have, um, as well as being important to, um, to helping to really build those skills. You know, To me, one sign of a great volunteer program is an intention of, um, of having this ladder of engagement where a volunteer who's come three times um has an opportunity to say yes i would like to take on the next level of responsibility where i can be the person who trains and coaches new volunteers doing this same thing um, and that expands the, the organizational capacity so much um, and you know these are still folks who might just be giving you know three hours a month um, uh, but if you have 10 people doing that, uh, that's a huge amount of capacity that you're adding.
0: So, yeah, when you ask people into those things, um, it really creates, yeah, you're, you're, you're creating more and more ripples that they, that they, um, can contribute to. And I, the other thing that you were talking about, the why and the how I, um, I work with groups doing, uh, helping them with their, uh, strategic planning and, and it's a, it's a process, right? There are lots of steps to it. And one of the things that I've realized recently is that I, it's so obvious to me what the why is, um, that I forget to, to tell people, um, the why of all of these steps that we're taking, uh, through the process. And so, I had an instance recently where there was a there was just a real misalignment of expectations because I hadn't done a good job of explaining that why. And I think for any of us who do the thing that they do, you know, you get to be very familiar with it and it all seems just, you know, as obvious as I don't know what, anything. And, and so it's easy to forget. So I, I appreciate that reminder.
1: Of course. And you know what, even though I said it, as I just listened to you, I realize that what you are saying applies to a situation I am in right now. So I <laughs> to <make>
0: it <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'm going to make it my mantra for 2023: <laughs> the why and the how, not just the
1: how. Well, great, great. It is a good, it is a good mantra. I just need to apply it to all aspects of my life, not just. Yeah that particular one.
0: (laughs) Right, right. And what I also appreciate about what you're talking about, we started talking about, you know, decision makers that you're trying to influence and kind of looking for how, where the commonality is. But I think it's really with your base, it's also looking for, you know, what, you know, what's going to, influence them to take action those those smaller steps that you're asking people to take Um, and some people you know they may be really motivated and i I was thinking also i was focusing in on skills but some people may be very motivated by that other people it may be other things of you know uh being part of a community that that's, that's 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 uh taking action um, you know, seeing those. And, and I think it's it's hard to go to wins because, I don't know, policy campaigns, There's often it's, it's often a very long process before you really get the big, you know, the big uh, triumph. So uh, finding those small wins as you go to keep people moving and motivated, but thinking about like, the different things that, that will engage people and motivate people um, at the same time of being strategic, of not trying to do all the things for all the people.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that that's right. And and listen, you're very much in touch with the reality that um, that policy change can be glacial, except when we don't want it to be. Right. right? <laughs> <an> hour,
0: like, <laughs> have this bullet train of bad policy coming right at us. Although um, the people on the other side will probably think, well, actually, we've been building towards that for the last 50 years. No, and, and, and you're exactly right. You're
1: 100% right about that. But you know, I think that um the way I and other people who have volunteered have experienced these policy campaigns, part of the win, again, is just the opportunity to um I, I think that for a lot of people the the win is simply being able to do something with other people to help move closer to that eventual win. And um, because the isolation and the frustration of being by yourself, being frustrated by something and just feeling helpless, that's terrible. I hate it, (laughs) other people hate it. and so for me, I'm like, look, let's just, let's cre- create ways to bring folks together. And I'm, I'm thinking about back, I think it might've been 2016 um, when the North Carolina legislature passed HB2, which got national press. It was you know, one of these anti-trans bills. And I was pissed, lots of people were pissed. And, um, you know, I decided, all right, I gotta do something. What can I do? What's what's gonna be helpful? Um, and I decided just to take um, some skills that I had learned in, in other campaigns to do some grassroots fundraising, to try to unseat some of the co-sponsors of that odious bill. Um, and so I just put together, you know, this, um, little, you know, grassroots fundraising thing where I invited people to join me. I had a friend who was able to get, uh, like, the community room in her neighborhood for us. I did a little training. We made phone calls just to our own personal contacts, and we raised about $5,000 one evening for some of these candidates um, to help get them elected. And, you know, In in the grand scheme of a campaign for state house or state senate, that's not a ton of money, um, but it's also a a significant amount of money. Um, And, you know, we all felt like we helped with um, getting a few good people elected, but also it just meant that we could all be in a shared space and. Um, and do something ourselves, and everyone we called to help make a donation was also someone who we knew was feeling like, oh, this HB2 thing stinks. I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. So it had those multiple layers or ripples, as you said, that really, you know, I knew that, well, yeah, I can donate money, but I, I have only... You know, I work in the nonprofit sector. How much money could I possibly donate? <laughs> well, <laughs> but I know people, and they can donate, and they know people, and they can right. donate. And again, so
0: that, that that yeah, they, pulling people in, as you talked about, you don't have to do it all yourself. Absolutely. Um, and that actually part of the joy is doing it together, yeah. and bringing people yeah. together and creating that that sense of community. Yeah. So really appreciate that. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So I'd like to end each episode with... um, playing a a game where I uh, ask you uh, an icebreaker question from my little box of icebreaker questions. Um, So we were talking about skills before. What's a skill that you learned when you were young that you would say that you still use today? I'm such a different adult than the kid I was. Um, Mm.
1: But there's a really obvious answer. So the skill that okay. I first used when I was in the fifth grade was simply the skill of um, not accepting that something has to be the way someone says it has to be. And I'm I'm thinking of a kid, Ooh. a boy. This is important to the story. A boy from my neighborhood who is in my grade at school deciding that girls couldn't play in the fifth grade softball game. Um, And when pressed by me for a reason why, coming up with this excuse that you had to have a glove, me saying, well, why can't we just borrow gloves from people who are at bat? And him saying, you have to have your own glove. And so goody two shoes me cut recess. (laughs) <laughs> to go home and get my own baseball glove, um, which I did. But then when I walked out of the door, instead of making a right to go back to school, I made a left um, to go to our neighbor's house and knock on the door and ask to borrow their kid's gloves. and went down the street and did it again. I walked back to school with my arms full of baseball gloves. And so, you know, those, those skills of, not accepting injustice in the world um, doing something so that i get justice for myself but also taking this step of making sure that other people have justice too
0: I love that story. That's perfect. I mean, here you were in fifth grade, you know, yep, taking taking standing up for something you believed in and then doing a neighborhood canvas to (laughs) collect resources (laughs) for your cause. I love it. That's great. That's great. So what are you excited about? What's what's coming up next for you? I'm super excited. Um,
1: I, I have decided that 2023 should be my year of um, being part of more teams. Um, and I'm excited about a couple of ways in which I see that happening. Um, one is already happening, which is that I'm going to be leading a team of uh, nonprofit professionals um, from various parts of North Carolina where I'm based um, and leading them through a a um, a three-month workshop, Advocacy Academy um, that we're calling it uh, to help them develop um, uh, advocacy campaigns. That also helped them build long- term power. so that's super exciting to me. Um, and then i'm I'm really trying to vision into existence um, a, a few more partnerships with organizations and really on the lookout for organizations that are ready to move beyond that oh we've got an idea we've got an idea and instead get into the mode of saying okay let's put a pit in this and think about what our desired outcomes are what we need to get there actually put together a campaign strategy take steps learn the skills we need and i'm i am open to doing trainings and strategic planning and that stuff that I've been doing for years. Um, But I've recognized that the work that is most fulfilling to me is when I can have a more sustained engagement with an organization and really be embedded in that team for like at least three months um, to really work alongside folks and Ask the questions that prod people, and make observations, and congratulate people on their great ideas, and help make things successful. Um, so, I'm I'm excited about um, looking for and embracing that kind of work.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, hey, Lisa. It was, was great awesome, having Carol. you thank on the you podcast so much as well. I appreciated how Lisa described intentionally building a ladder of engagement, recognizing that there are a lot of people who want to help and want to get involved, but may not know how. How to shift someone from an email on your mailing list to someone who more actively shows up for your organization. And I really appreciated the specificity of her ask. Are you willing to do something in the next three months? And then provide a menu of options. Something that might take three minutes, something that might take three hours. And by building a pathway of slowly increasing the involvement and responsibility, you provide folks a way in and you also have the opportunity to get to know them and vet them. See whether they follow through. Do they show up? Do they do what they say they will do? Or do you have to chase them down? I've seen uh, smaller organizations who want to invite folks onto the board immediately. First being on a board should be just one way to get involved in the organization, even if it's an all in volunteer group. And you're really taking a huge risk if this is your first ask of folks. For one, it's a big, big ask. So one that like folks are likely to say, who don't know you well, to say no to. And you don't know the person very well either, and don't know how they will or will not contribute to the work of the board. Find smaller ways for people to be involved. Invite non-board members onto board-sponsored committees or work groups and realize that not everyone is going to make their way all the way up that engagement ladder. Some are perfectly happy to show up for a one-off event occasionally or respond to an action alert on occasionally. And this ladder of engagement can be for advocacy, but it can be for a lot of other things as well. I'm on a lot of mailing lists for organizations that I support, and I get a lot of donation requests from them. What I don't see as often is small ways for me to get involved, highlighted, or featured. Most organizations put a lot of time thinking about how to make it easy for me to give them money, but not as many organizations that I've seen have put the thought into making it easy for me to give them time in meaningful ways. And I feel like this is a big missed opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find how to connect with Lisa, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Coaster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. And until next time... Thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.